Can't is everywhere we go. You can't go here. You can't go there. We can't stay closed. We can't stay open. They can't come over. You can't be on the fence. We can't make ends meet. We can feel like a prisoner to can't. But we don't have to be. What if we opened ourselves up instead of closing ourselves off? What if we looked for new opportunities instead of limiting them? What if, instead of pulling back, we stepped out and moved forward to listen, to grow, to love our neighbors, and to make our world better? What if we decided that can't can't stop us, and we chose can instead? What if we focused on what we can do? Hi, my name's KG, I'm the Kids and Youth Director here. If you've spent about 10 seconds with me, you will know I'm a basketball junkie. I love watching ball, playing ball, thinking about basketball, and so the NBA being in playoff mode, albeit in a bubble, this is like the best thing in the world to me because I have missed basketball for the last six months and uh, Sixers are breaking my heart a little bit, but I'm still enjoying being able to watch the game of basketball. I grew up, the, the player that I remember and grew up watching was a guy named Allen Iverson. He got drafted by the 76ers when I was about five or six years old, so I really don't remember a time before Allen Iverson. In fact, one of my earliest memories of watching NBA basketball was watching AI cross up Michael Jordan, not once, but twice at the top of the key before hitting that beautiful mid-range jump shot. I, I know that uh, Allen Iverson won Rookie of the Year, he went on to win an MVP award, and he carried the 76ers to the NBA Finals and even stole game one against the Kobe and Shaq-led Lakers, which in and of itself, honestly, that was a feat in and of itself, just taking one game against them. He has four scoring titles and I know he got traded to the Denver Nuggets and it just shattered my heart when that happened. And uh, he spent some time there, but then he, he also spent some time on some other teams and one of those was uh, the Detroit Pistons, and I was living in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the time, and so uh, the Sixers came to Detroit for a game, and me and some friends, we went, and we watched the Pistons-Sixers game at the Palace of Auburn Hills, and I wore my Iverson Philadelphia 76ers jersey, and I felt like I was cheering for both teams there for a little bit. Um, I could tell you all this stuff about Allen Iverson. I had a shoe when I was in high school. I have his bobblehead on my bookshelf to this day. I don't actually know the guy. Never met him. Uh, I've never had a conversation with him. I've never talked about practice with him. I don't know uh, what he likes to eat for dinner. I don't know uh, what makes him angry, what makes him sad, what, what cheers him up when he's feeling down. I don't know how he turns his day from bad to good, what he likes to do on a rainy day. Like, I don't know the guy. I know about him, but I don't actually know him. Uh, by contrast, I know about my wife and I know my wife. I know her birthday, I know her favorite color, I know her favorite color to wear, I know uh, what makes her sad, I know the difference between her real smile and her fake smile, I know how to cheer her up when she's had a bad day, I know what she'd do if she was snowed in for a day, like I know my wife. There's a difference between knowing someone and simply knowing about them. It's a big difference. 
And I think that concept is essential when we uh, think about and consider this passage from James chapter 2 that was just read, uh, where James talks about faith and works. This concept of knowing someone versus simply knowing about them is absolutely essential to understanding this passage because uh, it's a at first glance, a, a pretty challenging passage that we read from James. James, the book of James is a very straightforward, practical book. But as James writes about faith and works, it almost seems contradictory to some of the other things that we read in the Bible, specifically stuff that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote. Paul wrote in, in Romans 4, 4 and 5, he says, When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted righteous not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. Paul again wrote in Ephesians 2, he says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Yet James comes along and he says that uh, if you have faith but you don't have works, your faith is dead. Faith without works is dead. And he says that repeatedly. And this is something that almost seems to be contradictory to other things that we've read in the Bible. But I think it comes down to one of the key things in trying to understand this is thinking about the idea of knowing someone versus simply knowing about them. I want to take a look at faith and then we're going to take a look at work. See, the key to faith is relationship with God. Do you know about God or do you know God? Is your faith something that's just this intellectual understanding of who God is? This intellectual understanding of the Bible, of his word, of the stories that are written in there? Is it just this intellectual understanding or is it a personal faith and trust? Because until that faith moves from just this intellectual understanding of who God is to this personal knowing of who God is, nothing actually changes because, see, God made it personal for us. We need to move our faith just from an intellectual thing to a personal thing because God made it personal. See, way back in the beginning of time, uh, God created the idea of time. He created uh, the, the light and the darkness and he created the first day and he created the sun and the moon and the stars and the clouds in the sky and, and he created the, the oceans and filled them with water and the mountains and the trees and the fields and he created all these things and he put birds to, to fly in the sky and animals to roam the land and fish to fill the sea and, and he looks at everything that he makes and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. He looks at everything and he says, it's good. And then he gets to the end. God gets to the end. I love this. He, he, he calls everything good. And then he says, now let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our likeness. And so in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And he looks back and he says, it is very good. Nothing else God created was created in his image. That's mind-blowing to me because as we look at all the stars that fill the night sky and uh, some of the beautiful landmarks that you can see on our planet and some of the beautiful places you can go and the amazing animals that, that fill our land and fill our oceans and our skies, none of them, nothing else was created in the image of God except humanity. And because we were created in that image, we were created with an opportunity to be and we were designed to be in relationship with God. God created us with the intention to have a relationship with us, to have a union with us. 
And he created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, and he placed them in the garden, and then God would come down and he'd walk with them through the garden. And he'd talk with them. And this was a regular thing for them. Until man broke that relationship. Until humans rebelled against God and sin entered the world. Sin is anything that we think, say, or do that goes against what God says. And at a certain point along the way, man sinned. Sin entered the world. And this sin separated us from God because God is holy and completely perfect. God is without flaw. He has no failures in him, no blemishes in him, nothing wrong or evil in him. He is wholly good and perfect. And nothing imperfect can be in his presence. And so when sin entered the world, it created this divide between us and him. And there was nothing we could do because we were the ones that sinned. We were the ones that broke it. There was absolutely nothing we could do to restore that relationship with him. And and there's no amount of good things that we can do that can counteract the evil that we have done. I think sometimes we can think about and and go about life as if uh, I did this bad thing, so now I need to do some extra good things to to, to kind of erase those. Because like, well, I told this one lie, but now I'm going to tell three truths to make up for that lie. And it doesn't work like that. We treat it almost like you're counting calories. Like I get 2,000 a day and I ate that extra cookie after dinner and that was 200 extra calories. So tomorrow I'm going to go run for an extra mile to, to counteract that or or I'm going to eat 200 calories. Like, like It doesn't work like that. Because one sin puts that mark, you can't score 100%. You can't get a perfect record because that one sin. And there's no amount of good things that you can do that can counteract that. And nothing imperfect can be in the presence of a perfect God. And I think even having an understanding of what Jesus has done for me, when I'm at my worst, when I'm in my most unhealthy states, I fall to something we call a works-based righteousness, where I understand what Jesus did, but I still feel the need to try to earn God's love. I still feel a need to, to prove myself to God or to do enough good things so that God's not angry with me anymore. And so all of a sudden, I start working out of my own strength, and, and I start working and trying to do all these good things. My moral compass has to be pointed in just the right direction. And what's ironic about this is I'm trying my hardest to be as good as I can be. And I'm at my worst because I inherently become more selfish, more prideful, more arrogant, more irritable, and increasingly more judgmental because I begin looking at other people and say, I can't believe he did that or I can't believe she said that. And I'm trying to earn God's favor as if there was enough good things I could do to earn God's favor. Nothing we can do can put us in right standing with God. And God knew that. And God loved us so much that even though we were the ones that created this divide, He made it personal. Because he wanted a personal relationship with us. And he knew that the only one that could meet his criteria was him. And Paul in Romans teaches us that the payment for our sin was death. The penalty that we deserve for the wrong things that we have done is death. 
And in order for us to be restored in relationship with God, someone that was perfect needed to die in our place if we wanted a shot to be in relationship with him. And because God loved us so much, he sent his only son, Jesus, into the world to become nothing, to become like us. And to pay my penalty, to pay my payment for my sins, even though he himself was without any sin. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's why Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Not just this intellectual belief that, uh, you know, I've read through the Bible and I've memorized these Bible verses and, you know, I believe there's probably a God out there. Not just this intellectual belief or understanding, but this personal faith, this personal trust in Him where we say, God, I've tried it my own way. I can't do it. And we move towards God and we say, God, I am putting all of my trust completely in you. We take this personal step towards Jesus because Jesus took a personal step towards us. And we move from just knowing about God, we move to fully knowing God and learning more about Him and getting to know Him as He knows us. Jesus made it personal. And this is the kind of faith that changes things. I almost imagine it as a kid at a pool and he's standing on the edge and his dad is in the water and his dad's reaching out to him and he says come on son come on jump in the water I'll catch you I'll catch you and the son's there and he's scared he's never jumped into a pool before and he's looking at his dad but he's looking at the water and he's he's a little nervous and uh, he might believe intellectually he says you know what? I know my dad is strong enough to catch me but he needs to take that personal step and actually jump it doesn't look like faith. It doesn't look like he has faith in his dad. If he says, you know what, dad, I believe you can catch me. I'm just going to, I'm just going to sit right here. Like you can go swim some laps. Other kids are jumping in the pool. I'm just going to like, yeah, I'm good right here. I'm good right here. That's not a demonstration of faith. You didn't take that personal step. Jesus invites us to take a personal step to put our faith and our trust in him. And this faith is the only faith that can save us, that can justify us, that can put us in right standing with God. And this is the faith that, that James is talking about. See, the language is key here when we talk about works now. When we talk about works, he says, faith without works is dead. And he's not, he's not talking about the works are in addition to or in place of as a substitute for faith. He's talking about works that are a response to faith. See, when, when you know God, when you've taken that personal step of faith towards him, it changes everything. The night Jesus was betrayed, he was sitting with his disciples and in John 13, he says, I have a new commandment for you, that you love one another. In the same way that I have loved you, so you are to love one another. This will prove to the world that you're my disciples if you love one another. It won't prove to the world you're my disciples if you memorize a bunch of scripture. It won't prove to the world you're my disciples if you do this or that. It will prove to the world you're my disciples if you love each other. See, there's a response that happens when we've received the love that Jesus has poured out on us. It changes things. There's a natural response that happens in that moment. The words James is speaking of is a, is a response to faith, not in addition to, 
not in place of. The primary earnest and repeated point James makes is not that works must be added to faith, but that genuine faith includes works. It is the very nature of a genuine personal faith to express itself in works. It's the very nature of a faith to say, I, Dad, I trust you to catch me. I'm going to jump into the pool. That it's not... Uh, it's not going to sit on the sidelines. That there is a response. There is something that happens that, that puts action to it. It puts life to it. In verse 18 of James 2, he almost James imagines this hypothetical arguer that's there with him. He says, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. This may or may not have been based on someone actually saying this to him, but James responds to that. He says, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. See, James isn't particular about whether this questioner believes in just faith alone or deeds alone. He's not arguing for one or the other. He's arguing for the theological unity of the two, that faith and works are, are combined. They are one. And it's not that works justify us. Faith alone justifies us. Faith alone makes us right with God. Works make us more like His Son, Jesus. As faith expresses itself through works. And it expresses itself both in, in small ways and in scary ways. In, in James 2, 14, he starts this section. He says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? I love just this story that almost anyone can imagine themselves in. A couple weeks ago, I was down with some friends. Was, uh, my buddy was getting married. It was his bachelor party. We're walking around Center City, Philly, and there was a homeless guy there that just wanted a, a cup of coffee and a couple donuts. And my friend in his bachelor party, walks into the store and buys him a cup of coffee and a couple of donuts. Just a really simple way to meet a need. Faith expressing itself through actions. James says it doesn't do any good to just say, hey, I, I trust God will feed you because they may have been praying for someone to provide food for them and God might be sending you to be the answer to that very prayer. Faith expresses itself in small ways every single day. It might be uh, delivering food to uh, a family in need, delivering a meal to them, or going grocery shopping for someone that's health compromised and at risk and can't go out in public right now. It might be doing the dishes for your spouse when you know they've had a really long day. If you're a kid, it might be doing some of your, your siblings' chores. It might be doing your brother or sister's chores. It's not your job, but you know what Jesus says, in the same way I've loved you, you are to love other people. Faith can express itself in work in a variety of small ways. Maybe it's having joy in the midst of really unfortunate circumstances. Maybe it's sitting and listening, really listening to learn something from someone. Maybe it's sitting across the table to listen to someone that you know views the world different from you, someone you know you disagree with, but you're going to listen with the intent of learning, not just arguing back. These are small ways that faith expresses itself through love, through works, in everyday ways. But faith also expresses itself in really scary ways. At the end of this 
set of verses. He gives the example of Abraham. He's often referred to as the man of faith. And Abraham was asked by God to sacrifice his son, his son he waited his entire life for. God asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac. And Abraham had resolved in his heart to do it, and God stopped him and provided a different sacrifice. But Abraham was willing to trust God. He was called righteous. His faith was played out, was walked out in a really scary way. Me and my wife, Becky, we feel like we're walking this out right now. That our faith is being asked to come alive in a scary way. Because we love the lives that we have here uh, in the Philly suburbs. We, we love our church. We love our careers and our jobs and our friends and the network that we've built up here. We have a precious little six-month-old baby boy at home. And we feel God. We've sought after God with this. And we feel him leading us to pick up our family and, and move to the Midwest so that we could be closer to, to my wife's parents in Indiana and, and my parents in Michigan and all our siblings and our son's cousins. And while that's really, really exciting, it's the difference between our son seeing his grandparents once or twice a week instead of once or twice a year, and that's all really exciting. We're walking away from so much. So much as I've lived here for the last eight years, the friendships that we've built, the careers that we, that we love, the house that we love, that we've poured into, and uh, we're moving from a four-bedroom house to a two-bedroom apartment, and uh, we're taking like a 60% pay cut and going from two incomes to one, and this is scary. As a numbers guy, this freaks me out because on paper, it just doesn't make sense. But we feel this is the step of faith that God is calling us into, and it's scary. It's terrifying for us but we're also excited for it and we don't know what the the end result of this thing looks like we just know what the next step is and we know that God's in the pool and he's asking us to take that next step and sometimes I'm grateful God doesn't show me the whole road because I don't know if I'd walk it if I knew where the road led but I know I could take one step at a time as he leads me that's why we ask people to take next steps around here all the time instead of giant leaps. God might be calling you into a next step to put your faith into action and take a scary step. We're in the middle of a series called What We Can Do. In the midst of being told all the things we can't do all the time, we want to take a look at some of the positive things that we can do. And each week we challenge you with a do of the week. And this week it's twofold. The first is do the small thing. Every day there's an opportunity for your faith to express itself in works in a small way. It might be doing the dishes for someone. It might be listening to someone. It might be buying a cup of coffee for someone. Let your faith express itself in small ways this week. And the other is do the scary thing. Do the small thing and do the scary thing. And you may know exactly what that scary thing is because it may have been tormenting you for weeks now, months maybe even years, that there's something that you know in your heart, you know in your gut, in your spirit, it's the right thing to do, but you have a million reasons why you shouldn't do it. Maybe it's joining a small group. You have a million reasons why you shouldn't. You've been hurt by a small group in the past, or 
uh, you're already on Zoom 30 hours a week, you don't need another hour of it, or uh, you can't afford to give up another weeknight. There, There could be a million reasons why not to do something. Do the scary thing. It could be serving for the first time. It could be giving for the first time. And maybe it doesn't make sense. Maybe you're barely in the black each and every month, but you still feel in your spirit you're supposed to give. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's forgiving someone that's just hurt you so bad. And you can't figure out how to forgive them. And you don't want to forgive them. In the same way I have loved you, so you were to love other people. Allow your faith to express itself in works this week. Do the small thing. Do the scary thing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for everything that you've done for us. Uh, God, when we were dead in our sins and we owed a payment for our sins, you took a personal step towards us and you paid that price for us. God, we can never thank you enough. And God, I pray if there's anyone that hasn't taken that personal step of faith towards you before, God, that today would be the day that today they would say yes, that they would say, I I believe in you and I'm placing my hope and my trust in you, Jesus. God, I pray for all of us that we would allow our faith to express itself in works, that others would see our good deeds and glorify you in heaven, that, uh, God, that we would have the, the boldness and the courage and the eyes to see the hurt around us, that we would allow our faith to express itself in, in works and do the small thing this week. Each and every day, I pray that we would express our faith through a small action. And God, I pray that we would take steps towards doing the scary thing, whatever that might be. God, uh, maybe we just need the courage to take one big step this week Maybe you need to reveal to us what that scary thing is. I don't know what it is for each person, God. But I pray that we'd have the boldness, that we'd have the courage, that we'd have the faith and the trust in you to do the small thing and do the scary thing. We love you, God. In your name we pray. Amen.